0: hey everybody john mark comer here welcome to the teaching portion of bridgetown church online so much love to all of you i miss you i wish i could give you a bear hug right now or at least smile at you from across the room but due to the shutdown that is not an option right now but we're so happy that you're here that you're watching from your living room on your couch or around your kitchen table. To start off, um, I know it's funky to meet in the digital ether and I think that the same rules still apply for digital distraction. So I invite you just to put your phone away and give your full attention to God and to the moment to make sure you have a Bible at hand and if you want a notepad and a pen nearby to write down what you feel like the spirit is stirring up in your heart. On that note, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter five. The last day before the shutdown, I had a meeting on my calendar with Matt DeWolf. Matt, if you know him, is a legend around our church. He's one of our leaders. He started our PDX Casino Night, which is our annual fundraiser for every child in the foster care system in Portland and beyond. And he's just a great hang. And so I was looking forward to our time together and I show up at Heart Coffee, that was our meetup spot and it had just closed down a few hours before, which was very sad, but it was a beautiful Portland spring day. And so we just went on a walk and I asked Matt, Hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling with all the craziness? And he's an upbeat guy. He said, I'm doing great. My job, thank God is not in jeopardy and I'm actually excited to not travel for work for a while. But then he said, I'm just a little scared of all the time alone. And then he said something really interesting. He said, you introverts have been living in our extroverted world for your whole life. And now it's our extroverted turn to live in your world for a little while. And in all honesty, I'm scared. A few days ago in an op-ed for the New York Times, Samantha Edmonds called 2020 the year of the introvert. All of the introverts hear about shelter in place and then read the description and think, wait a minute, that's just my, already my actual life. And that's not to make light of a very serious situation. It's just to say we are now living in an introverted world. That got me thinking about Susan Kane's book, Quiet: the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. It's a great read if you want, or a TED Talk. In her book, she writes about what she calls the extroverted ideal in American culture. There is a social pressure for all of us to act like extroverts, even if we're not. And there is a social stigma on those who are introverted or quiet or shy. She tells a story of kind of how this came to be, starting with the Industrial Revolution. Before that, most of our ancestors were farmers and spent very long days alone or just with family. But when we moved into cities a century ago, we had to adapt to close quarters and strangers and all sorts of stimuli and noise and eating out. Then with the dawn of the information age, we had to all become salespeople at some level. We had to learn how to sell ourselves to get a job and then sell our idea in a business meeting or sell our project or sell our product itself. All of this conspired together to create what she calls the extroverted ideal. And Kane's basic thesis is not just that, hey, introverts are great and we need introverts. It's that all of us, extroverted or introvert, need quiet. Because most of the great breakthroughs in science and technology and business innovation and art and philosophy and religion have all come when people were alone in the quiet. The problem is, due to the extroverted ideal in American culture and digital distraction and online streaming of everything and a culture of hurry and busyness and what Rollheiser calls pathological busyness and how others write about Uh, American culture is almost a virtual conspiracy against the interior life. Due to all of that and more, many of us just don't know how to be alone, including many of us introverts. What's the Pascal line? All of humanity's problems arise from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. But now, due to the shutdown and shelter in place and all sorts of things, we are alone literally all by yourself right now in your studio apartment, or just with your spouse or your family or your roommate. And many of us simply don't know how to sit quietly and navigate a whole new world. But I have good news for you. I can think of no better teacher on how to be alone than Rabbi Jesus. Now, I have no idea if Jesus was an introvert or an extrovert or in Cain's paradigm, an ambivert. All I know is that Jesus spent a lot of time alone in the quiet. Take a look with me at Luke chapter 5, verse 15. The news about Jesus spread all of the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The word that in the NIV is translated lonely places is one word in Greek. It's the word aremos. There are a number of ways to translate aremos into English. The desert, or the deserted place, or the desolate place, or the solitary place, or the lonely place. Or here's one I love, the quiet place. And Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to the aremos and prayed. Listen to a few other translations of Luke 5. The Net Bible has Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Or here's another, Jesus often slipped away to be alone so he could pray. Or the message, as often as possible, Jesus withdrew to out-of-the-way places for prayer. The point is, Jesus made it a regular part of his rule of life to slip away from people and just to be alone in the quiet with God. In fact, if you pay close attention to Jesus' rule of life as it comes to us through the four Gospels, You notice what I call a rhythm of retreat and return. Jesus would kind of toggle back and forth between time with people and a thick web of relationships and interdependence and community and love and service. But then he would retreat. He would disappear. He would slip away to the top of a mountain or get up early or head out into the wilderness just to spend time alone in the Eremos. Last week, I said that one way to think of the shelter-in-place order is as an involuntary Sabbath, and that's true. But another way to think about it is as an involuntary desert. Yes, this is a kind of sabbatical for many of you, not all of us, not me, but many of you. And you are loving the time to get caught up on reading and house projects or a documentary series or your favorite show. But it's also a kind of Lent. In fact, it's interesting to me that COVID-19 comes to the West during Lent, which for those followers of Jesus who adhere to the church calendar is a time when you give up pleasure for more of the presence of God. People give up anything from wine to coffee to meat to social media to TV to shopping, whatever it is, to an extra hour of sleep to give that time and energy and attention and resources to prayer. But now, whether you are a high church Anglican listening from the other side of the world, we love you, or a low church Anabaptist like myself, all of us are in Lent. All of us are in an involuntary, kind of against our will, season of abstinence from regular life. God is leading his church, I think, all over the world into the desert. As he led Israel in the Exodus, as he led Jesus into the wilderness, and as he led so many others down through church history. Right now, as we speak, the Spirit of God is stripping away all that is unholy in his church. In me, I know this is my reality right now. In you as well, in our city, in our nation, in our world. He is in love, I think, tearing down the emotional scaffolding by which we hold up our soul in this comfortable Western lifestyle. And in return, he is giving us, I think, a greater sense of his presence. But in the literature of scripture, the desert is not like a vacation at Palm Springs or kind of a poolside chat in Bend in summertime. It is the place of encounter. Listen to Henry Nowen, that Catholic intellectual and just really spiritual genius, in The Way of the Heart, which is my favorite book by him. He writes this, Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born, the place where the emergence of the new man and the new woman occurs. Solitude is the furnace of Transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusion of the false self. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. comes as no surprise that later in his life, now and said that without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life at all. On that note, from the life of Jesus, if you just pick up the New Testament and read the four Gospels, we see at least four examples of what his time in the Aremos and ours was an encounter with. First off, if you're taking notes, it is an encounter with evil. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Again, just turn in your Bible, Matthew chapter 4. And take a look with me at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and the word there in Greek is aremos, wilderness is another way to translate it, to be tempted by the devil. Note, Jesus was led by the Spirit of God to the aremos, to the, the wilderness or the desert of the quiet, to be tempted by evil itself in personified form. In the third century, when the way of Jesus was legalized in the Roman Empire, and for the first time in church history, cultural Christianity began to compromise the integrity of the church, there was a move of the Spirit calling men and women out of the city and into the desert, first in Egypt and North Africa, then later in Syria, and eventually all the way over to Celtic Britain and in the mountains of Italy and pretty much everywhere in what later became the monastic movement. But they did not go into the desert to flee as much as to fight. They had a saying, we withdraw from the world for the world. They said that they were following Jesus' example in Matthew chapter 4 and going out into the desert to fight the Satan himself. A year or two ago, back when international travel was all the rage, Jude and I went to Ireland and we had a day or two off. I was doing some speaking. And so we drove down to the southwestern coast of the island to visit Skellig Michael, which is an island off the coast. And it's, uh, it's a location where they filmed a bunch of the most recent Star Wars trilogy. In the movie, it's where Luke is hiding in the lost Jedi temple. In real life, the island is alien and stark and stunning, but it's not a Jedi temple, I'm sorry to admit. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site of a Celtic monastery that is over a thousand years old. The huts in the movie are actually there. They are the monastic cells that are over a millennium old. The monks named it Skellig Michael. Skellig is most likely Gaelic for rock, and it's basically an island of rock. And Michael, after Michael the Arch Angel in the revelation, because if you know that story at the end of the Bible, he does battle with the Satan. And they went out there to the westernmost point of Europe, really the edge of the known world at the time, to do battle with Satan, to hold back the waters of chaos and anarchy and evil and pray on behalf not only of Ireland, but of Europe and the world, you know, like you do. But whether it was the Irish And Augustinian monks at Skellig Michael or Egyptians in the Sinai Peninsula, they saw the battle with the devil, listen very carefully, as a war in the mind with evil thoughts. I'm currently reading a book. I love that reading is making a comeback in The Shelter in Place. I'm currently reading a book from the 4th century by Avaragus Pontus, also known as Avaragus the Solitary, which... Can I just stop right there and say how good that would be to call me John Mark the Solitary? It's not a thing. I'm a dad and a husband. But it's called Talking Back, A Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. So if any of you just want some light reading, there you go. And his basic thesis is that the desert is a battle with evil thoughts in your mind. And to win, you follow Jesus' example in Matthew chapter 4. You don't indulge the demonic thoughts. You don't let them play like a video in your mind. You change the channel and you set your mind instead on God and on Scripture, on the truth of God. He makes the point that in Matthew 4, Jesus refuses to be drawn into conversation with the devil. His weapons are silence and Scripture. In the desert, be it the desert of North Africa, or a rocky crag off the coast of Ireland in Skellig Michael, or your studio apartment off Division, or wherever you call home. We face down evil itself without and within our own mind. Many of us don't realize that the desert, or the Aremos or the quiet, is the place of encounter with evil, and are thus dismayed when we show up and we expect it to feel like Sabbath, we expect it to feel like a day at the spa, but instead it feels a lot more like war but we wage war for the content of our thought life. We battle with what Paul, later in the New Testament, calls strongholds in our mind, bastions of lies and narratives that play and replay in our mind and our imagination and our memory. And we fight to bring our mind stream, the flow of thoughts through our mind into alignment with what Paul calls the mind of Christ and to break off the enemy's bondage or stronghold. What he calls, he writes, we demolish strongholds. We let the truth of Scripture and the power of the Spirit of God tear down the lies that have come to hold us in bondage to fear and set us free. Secondly, the desert is the place of encounter with our emotions. Turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Take a look with me down at verse 36. You know this well-known story from right before Jesus' death. Do any of you feel like that this last week? I know some of you had a great week, but some of you dealing with unemployment or pain or fear or loneliness, do you feel that way? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's okay to feel sad. Jesus himself was sad when he was facing death and suffering. But Jesus was also emotionally healthy enough to realize that what we need when we are sad is a combination of time alone with God in prayer and close friends and relationships with family and the community of Jesus. Now, keep reading. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, if there's any way, may this cup, referring to his death, be taken from me this is not what i want yet not as i will but as you will he comes to that place of yielding over the illusion of control now we don't think of the garden of gethsemane as a desert per se i think of it as a garden it was beautiful but it was an aramos it was a quiet and a solitary place and one of jesus go to places for prayer in the story that we just read Jesus goes there to process his emotions before God. In the desert, we, like Jesus, slow down long enough to breathe and long enough for all of the emotions that, in all honesty, we have been running away from through hurry and busyness and digital distraction and social media and work and hedonism and entertainment and our social life. And then all of that stuff that is in us, it just starts to come to the surface. It just starts to catch up. And we start to feel the full gamut of human emotion, fear, anxiety, tension in our body, the catastrophizing of what if, what if, what if, grief, lament, loss, that sorrow in our spirit, self-pity. Am I the only one? Has anybody been feeling Self-pity over the last few days, just feeling sorry for myself, anger at our boss who fired us, or at politicians, or at people that don't check on us, or at God himself, loneliness, this am I all alone in the universe? A few days ago, the chief of police for Portland announced that there was a 23% spike in suicides since the COVID-19 shelter-in-place began. And often, that's, that's sad, but it's not surprising because often when we get alone, all sorts of negative emotions come to the surface of our heart. God have mercy on us and on the vulnerable in our city. But positive emotions also come to the surface of our heart. Peace, a sense of serenity that ah, I'm actually okay, joy even, or contentment or gratitude. I'm feeling more grateful the last week or two than I have in many years. I'm just so aware right now of all that I take for granted. Freedom, or what Ignatius called indifference, all of that comes up too. But if your experience is anything like mine, then the negative emotions likely come up before the positive emotions. But after I move through my emotions, I see them for what they actually are, just thoughts and feelings. Martin Lard, in his book on contemplative prayer called Into the Silent Land, which is a great place to start, by the way writes that emotions in his metaphor are kind of like the weather on top of a mountain. Your thoughts and your feelings, they are like the weather. They change every hour, every day, every minute, every second. There are good days and there are bad days. There are beautiful sunny skies and there are stormy skies or boring skies. But below that kind of tumultuous weather, there is something deeper below your thoughts and your feelings, what he calls Mount Zion, this deep part of you below your thoughts, below your feelings, inside your body, what Thomas Kelly called the unhurried center of peace and power, what the writers of the New Testament, I think, call your spirit. This part of you that is much more calm and in serene because it is living, it is abiding in the vine. You are the branch, Jesus is the vine, and you're not sure where does the branch end and the vine begin. Where do you end and where does God begin? What is you and what is the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace? And in the quiet, we have an invitation to sink below the weather on top of the mountain, our thoughts and our feelings that are raging in our body and in our thought life and to go down into that deep center what if we were to see our emotions positive or negative as invitations to meet god and to let the spirit of god take us down from our thought life that's just all over the map our emotions that are just coursing through our body take us down to that deep center and meet god there third the desert is the place of encounter with our idols Turn back to Matthew chapter 4 one more time. We were there just a few minutes ago. But now I want to read the next line, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. How many of you feel right now on Tuesdays? The tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered with a quote from Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's not surprising to me that Jesus is fasting in the desert. There is a stripping away to the holy that happens in the desert that I find both emotionally excruciating and at the same time, liberating and enlivening as all of our creature comforts are torn away, bread, literal and figurative stimulus of the digital world and all of that in the city, our social life, hedonism for many of us work even, or a steady paycheck. All of that is just stripped away. And we realize just how in bondage to them we are for our happiness. In Christian spirituality, the name for things that we are in bondage to for our happiness is attachments. Gerald May, who's a psychologist and a Christian spiritual director, in his book, On the Dark Night of the Soul, writes about how God is always targeting our attachments in love. Listen to his words. Regardless of how a compulsion appears externally, underneath, it is always robbing us of our freedom. We act not because we have chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things, people, beliefs, and behaviors, not because we love them, but because we are terrified of losing them. The classical spiritual term for this compulsive condition is attachment. Each of us has countless attachments. We are attached to our daily routines, our environments, our relationships, and of course, our possessions. We are also attached to our religious beliefs, and to our images of ourselves, others, and God. In a spiritual sense, the objects of our attachments and addictions become idols. We give them our time, energy, and attention, whether we want to or not, even and often especially when we are struggling to rid ourselves of them. We want to be free, compassionate, and happy. But in the face of our attachments, we are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. This is the root of our trouble, the root, the very bottom of the human condition. We've done work before on the four layers of purgation in the classical Christian stage theory of the three ways purgation, illumination, union. In stage one of purgation, which is the purging of sin in our mind and our body, there are four layers in the classical tradition. Layer one is what the ancients called gross sins, just meaning things like murder or violence or theft or adultery. Layer two is conscious sins, meaning sins that are socially acceptable, but not the way of Jesus. So in our time, it's a lot of what's on Netflix or consumerism or sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage or marijuana. Layer three is unconscious sins, which are far more subtle. Now we're into sins of omission. Not commission, it's what you don't do more than it is what you do. Or sins of motivation, where you do the right thing, but for sorts of wonky reasons that are not love, for ego or ambition or anxiety or a need for control. But layer four, like the very bottom, is what Robert Mulholland, a, a spiritual formation teacher I love, he calls trust structures. They are the things that we put our trust in for a happy life that do not go by the name of Jesus. Thomas Keating called them our emotional programs for happiness. Calvinists call them our idols. Whatever you call them, they are the, quote, root of our trouble. Why? Because we are in bondage to them, meaning at least at an emotional level and if not at an economic level and far more, we need them to be Okay. The anxiety, the grief, the terror, the anger that so many of us feel right now is over the losing or more likely the potential of losing something that we are attached to. Something that we love and we think we need in order to be okay and safe and at peace and happy. What we realize in the desert is that our attachments, even if they are good things, and in fact, most of the time they are two good things, a job or an income stream or relationship or a coffee shop or church gatherings, whatever it is, we think they are a source of happiness, but actually they are a source of emotional and spiritual bondage that is keeping us from happiness. The trick is to enjoy all that is good in our life. Heart coffee, I'm on my last pound as long as it lasts our job, our paycheck, our loved ones church itself without needing them to be happy and at peace. And that is, let's just be honest, that is very hard to do. That requires a very high level of emotional maturity and spiritual dexterity. And for most of us, I hate to tell you, but the best teacher is loss, not gain. It's losing something, not getting something. When an attachment is stripped away at the end of that relationship or that job, or when something is in jeopardy, that is a chance it's a vulnerability, but it is also an opportunity for the student of rabbi Jesus to attach to him at a deeper level than ever before. And let God just do a deep work of stripping away and just really digging deep to set you and I free. Finally, The desert is the place of encounter with God. One last story. Turn over to Mark chapter one, Mark chapter one in your Bibles and take a look with me again at another story from Jesus life. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house. And he went off to the eremos in Greek, or in the NIV it's translated a solitary place, where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, hey, everybody's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Note, Jesus goes out early in the morning to the eremos to pray. And we don't know what happened there. what exactly God said, but we do know that Jesus comes back with a vision and a sense of direction from the Spirit of God for his life and work, meaning there was some kind of an encounter with the God that he called Father in what he called the secret place. In the end, the main reason that we go into the quiet or the desert or whatever you want to call it is to encounter God in the silence and to hear his voice. Many argue that God is a kind of silence, or what St. John called silent love, and there is a lot of truth in that. But at the same time, what many others attest to is that if you go into the Eremos, and you stay there in the quiet, and you wait on God, and you fight off distraction and evil thoughts and all of that, and you just let perseverance have its perfect work in you, then often You hear in a strange way that is hard to put into language the voice of the Spirit deposit into your heart. But it is on God's timetable, not ours. God is not a monkey on a chain. He's Aslan. He comes when he is ready to come. He speaks when he is ready to speak. There's a dance and it is beautiful. Our job is to wait in the quiet and just to adopt a posture of listening but this is very hard. In all transparency, you know, the last few weeks for me have been brutal at an emotional level. Not at a spiritual level. I really feel God alive and with me and with our church in a very hard time, but I'm just tired like many of you. This has not been a sabbatical for me. This has been crazy hours and a lot of stress from life and leadership. And this crisis is exposing all of my attachments, like it's all large and in charge in my mind's eye right now and right at the surface of my heart. Just how I attached I am um, as a pastor to our church and to our new church building and to all of our plans for the future and staffing and strategy and innovation and vision for what we feel God is calling us to. And now all of it is up in the air. Who am I without all of these things? I feel like Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you know that work, when Aslan is tearing away all his dragon scales with his sharp claw, and it's painful, but he writes, I'm becoming a boy again. I also feel that, like God is tearing away, but I feel like I'm becoming a boy again. And I know it will all be worth it in the end, not just for me, but for you, and for our church, and even for our world. The desert is the place of encounter with evil, with our emotions, with our idols, and with our God. And make no mistake, we are in an involuntary desert. The question is, will your desert be a time of escape or a time of encounter? The temptation to escape has never been more alluring, more acceptable, and more accessible than it is right now in the digital age. Some of you are thinking, why would I go to the desert? That sounds terrible, like that's binge-watch The Mandalorian or whatever. Here's why all of that stuff, evil thoughts and false lies that play in your mind and emotions and attachment, all of that stuff is in you already and it's all coming out of you. The question is, is it coming out in the safe place of the father's love? Either we turn and we run away from the quiet in an attempt to escape from evil, from our emotions, from our idols, and even from God, or we turn We face it all headed on, and we open to God himself and his loving presence. The need for an encounter with God has never been greater than it is now. What will you do? What will I do with our time in the desert? If you want a prayer exercise for your time in the quiet, if you're by yourself or not, or you get up early before your kids, here's one that I do every single morning. You're welcome to practice or play around with. Before I read scripture, I just do this very simple thing. It's basic contemplative prayer, kind of 101. St. John of the Cross, that spiritual master, once said, Our greatest need is to be silent before this great God, for the only language he hears is the silent language of love. Contemplative prayer at its most basic is the silent language of love. The goal is not to pray with words, Or even to pray with thoughts and feelings, but to move beyond that or below that to, in Jesus' words, to abide in the vine. Or another way to translate that is to rest in God and let God rest in you. But the first thing that you realize when you attempt any kind of contemplative prayer or just time in the quiet at all alone with God is that the main problem is your dang mind. It's distracted all of the time. You sit down to pray and next thing you know, it's 10 minutes later and you've been making your grocery list in your mind or yelling at your boss in your mind or freaking out over the future in your mind or a squirrel. In my case, there's a tree in my backyard and there literally is a squirrel there all the time. Because your mind is distracted by thoughts and by feelings. That's because your mind needs something to do. It can't not think. So the solution to that problem is very simple. Give your mind something to do. The most common way to do that in the way of Jesus is just to let your mind focus on your breathing. Very similar to mindfulness, which we're familiar with in our secular city. But then you add a breath prayer to it. The common one is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Or for some people, it's just the name Jesus. Mine right now is Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. And you just tie your breath prayer to your breath. And at a whisper or out loud or in the quiet, you just watch your breath and you pray your prayer. And the goal really isn't to meditate on scripture, though I think there is a powerful effect there. The goal is not just to come back to the moment, not the past or the future. And it's not just to calm your limbic system, though all of that matters. The goal is to commune with God beyond words or even thoughts or even feelings. And when distractions come, not if, but when, trust me, they will come, don't beat yourself up. Don't think, I just wasted 10 minutes. Don't think I'm bad at this. We're all bad at this. St. Teresa said, when it comes to prayer, everyone is a beginner. St. Teresa said that. We're all bad at this. Don't think I don't have the right personality fit for it or I don't like this. Just avoid any kind of judgment of yourself, of the practice of prayer, of God. Just let be what is. And when those distractions come... Just come back to your breathing to God. If they keep coming, then just turn them over to God. It's likely something in your soul. Just turn it over to God. Release it to him in prayer. In the beginning, just like a minute or two of this is like, well done. Give yourself a pat on the back. Five or ten minutes is like you are basically a spiritual master. But the longer you keep at it, the more you find that you just relax into God's presence and his love in closing you know many people fear the quiet fear time alone they fear what may come up what god may say or not say but to quote again jesus most repeated command do not fear there is nothing to fear jesus and the trinitarian community of love are waiting there to welcome you with open arms to show you compassionate, to give you love, to comfort you. Yes, to purge and purify you of all your attachments, but also to set you free and fill you with love and joy and peace. God is waiting for you in the quiet. Let's just take a moment now and pray. I invite you even now just to take a deep breath. Give yourself over to God. To become present to your own body. Feel your feet on the floor. Feel God holding you up on your couch or chair. Become aware of any sensations in your body or any feelings in your heart any thoughts or feelings that are just running through your mind and just, however you want, just give them over to God. Unlock that inner emotional fulcrum and just release your life into the love of God. Jesus, we pray with you. Let this hour pass, please, but not our will. Your will be done. Thanks so much for listening to the Bridgetown Church podcast. As many of you know, we recently bought a church building on the inner east side of Portland and are just about done with the remodel. The plan is to move in late April or early May, depending on what happens with the coronavirus. And we just want to ask that you would continue to give to Bridgetown Church without uh, our Sunday gatherings. We're in a little bit of a vulnerable space. So this is a really key time for us at a financial level, and we're really ready to flex that muscle of generosity. And so we just ask that you would continue to give. Or For those of you that are not a part of Bridgetown Church, but you listen along to the podcast, if you at all feel the spirit of God lead you to give to support the work of our church and our new building project, we would be so grateful. You can give online at bridgetown.church slash give or find out more at our webpage. Love to you all.